please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, page 909, picking up from the reading that we just had in Acts 1, 1 through 11. This is Dr. Luke's sequel, sequel of books. So it's a part two of what he wrote in his gospel, the gospel of Luke, and now in the book of Acts, he picks up in the life of Jesus, and then Jesus goes off of the scene, and there's this intervening period here before the Holy Spirit comes, and that is the text that we are going to look into this evening. And so we will read verses 12 down through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language Alkadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward too Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. May the Lord bless his holy word to our hearts and minds this evening. Let us pray once again. O God, as we look at this great passage, and we seek to glean a few lessons from it this night, we pray that you would illuminate our eyes, that your word would truly be a lamp unto our feet, and that you would guide us and lead us now by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, some of you might be too young to remember the old sitcom Happy Days. I know some of you would be old enough to remember it, but I was 10 years old at the time, and I vividly remember the series of shows that were called the Jumping the Shark series. Does anybody remember that, Jumping the Shark? We have the term now called Jumping the Shark. And this is where it comes from, all the way back to 1977, September of 1977. And so 10-year-old me is watching this, and I'm watching and riveted by what's taking place and happening here, and the excitement is building within the story. And then all of a sudden, three words come onto the screen. 
to be continued. We have to wait another week. But you know what happened the next week? The same thing. It was a three-part series. To be continued. We're very, very fortunate that in our New Testament, we can just flip from the Gospels pages and we can flip to the book of Acts and we can see what happens next. We don't have to wait. But that is not the case of the apostles during this time. They're having to wait this intervening period. Jesus was with them for 40 days, and we saw that in our first reading. We see that in verse 3. 40 days from the resurrection until the time that he's taken up. And then there's another 10 days before Pentecost, so 50 days after the resurrection is Pentecost. And during that intervening 10 days, the disciples are waiting. These 120 people are waiting. They're waiting and trying to wait patiently. And we might think that why have this intervening period? Why does this 10-day period occur? Why doesn't Jesus get taken up and he's promised the coming of the Holy Spirit? Why doesn't the Holy Spirit just come right away? Just right now. Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit comes, and we're on with the mission that Jesus gives them here in Acts 1.8 to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. But we find this 10-day waiting period here happening for the disciples and these other people that are there. And it's very difficult to wait, but they have this waiting period here, but they accomplish a number of different things, some very important things during this 10 days. But they could have been very, very frustrated. And I I know, who wants to wait for things? We don't like to wait for things. If we have something on a far-off date, we don't want to wait for that date to come. We live in an instant society. We want everything now. We want things to happen right now. For young children, it can be excruciating if you're waiting for a birthday and maybe your parents have promised you a particular gift that you've been bugging them for 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 months and then all of a sudden they say, okay, we'll give it to you for your birthday. But your birthday isn't for weeks or months down the road and that can be painful to have to wait for these things. So waiting is not fun. We are people that want to see action. We want to see things happening. So we often expect action to take place immediately. And Jesus told them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait that the promised Holy Spirit was coming. And we might expect that the Holy Spirit would descend immediately, but again, that's not the case. There is this intervening 10-day period here. And sometimes we have waiting periods within our own lives. We might be asking God for something, and God seems to be putting a wall up. There seem to be the breaks that go on. There seems to be this period of waiting. These are often the hardest periods for us to endure in our lives. Sometimes we might have a medical appointment or medical results that we're waiting for and we're dreading. These periods of waiting can come, become very difficult for us. So waiting can seem like we are wandering in the wilderness. It can seem like this time in which nothing is happening, that even God isn't acting, God's not moving. I'm asking and God isn't doing anything. Why isn't God acting? Well, the answer to that sometimes is that we have a different agenda than the Lord does. We have a different timetable than the Lord does. And so there is these intervening periods of waiting. Now, for these people that are waiting, maybe the Lord is developing their character. No doubt that is taking place. Maybe he's developing their knowledge in the scriptures. And no doubt that is taking place too. And we seldom have the patience to do these things to mine the scriptures, 
to wait patiently on the Lord, to see the Lord developing our character. It can be very hard for us to see that character development within us. It can be hard sometimes to see that development within other people around us. And so we see here in the second half of Acts chapter 1 that the early Christians here, they were active while they were waiting. They were active while waiting. And that's a very important thing for us to be. We don't just sit back and and say, well, I've prayed and that's all I'm going to do. And I'm just going to now just wait. Though waiting can be something that we should do. And we're going to talk about that at the end. But there's also a time that we need to be active while we are waiting. And we see that taking place in the lives here. We see in verses 12 to 14 here, the amazing submission that the, that the disciples have in their lives concerning what the Lord is asking them to do. And we see in verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. What on earth is a Sabbath day's journey. There's all kinds of funny things that are in the Bible like this that are contextualized within the time period. But a Sabbath day's journey is is walking 2,000 cubits or less. What is that? Two-thirds of a mile or 1.07 kilometers. That is what the old rabbis, the religious leaders set up. They determined that would be an allowable amount for us to walk on the on the Lord's day. So on the Sabbath, you're forbidden to work, but you weren't forbidden to walk unless your walking turned into work. So they set up this, this number of 2,000 cubits, that that was the allowable distance. And that was the distance from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. That was within that allowable limit. And so we could say that the distance from here to Victoria and 41st is around a Sabbath day's journey. We could frame it in that way if we were going to use the New Testament time period language and put it in their vernacular. So roughly 1.07 kilometers, that's a Sabbath day's journey. You were allowed to walk that or less. So they weren't, the point is, they were not in violation of that command. And then we see in verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, this is the last mention of Mary in the New Testament. We don't see that she is venerated by Jesus. We don't see that she is venerated by the New Testament writers. In Mark chapter 6, we see a list of Jesus' brothers. We see there James, Joseph, Judas. That's a different from the Judas or the Judas that's listed here. And Simon. All of these were the half-brothers of Jesus. So after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary had normal more normal relations as a couple. They had boys and they had girls. And Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. And Mary was not forever the Virgin Mary. So they had normal relations together. And in the 14th century, the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary was developed. And this said, the, and this said that, that, that Mary was a virgin. She gave birth to Jesus and then she didn't have any more children. That was it. She was forever a virgin. But that is not what the Bible says. Jesus had half-brothers 
and have sisters. So back to the main point of the submission after those clarifications in the text. The submission of the disciples. I don't think that this would have been easy or it wouldn't have been easy for me because I would have been thinking, well, Jesus said he's coming back or the angel says Jesus coming back. That, that's the declaration that we see in verse 11. We don't know when he's coming back. I want to go home to my wife and kids. I want to go back fishing. I want to go back as a tax collector, whatever business ventures they were in. I want to go back. And then when Jesus comes back, sure, we'll pick up the mission and we'll carry on. But that's not what they do. That They didn't do that. In his final charge to them before his ascension, Jesus had commanded the apostles to wait in Jerusalem. And they heeded this command. We see in Luke 24, 49, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that's just what they did. They stayed put until they had further instructions, until the Holy Spirit comes. Instead of launching out with their own ideas, with their own agenda, doing their own things, they waited. They waited patiently, submissively, waited for the promised Holy Spirit to come and to then to fulfill the mission that they had in Acts 1.8 and also in Matthew 28. So that's point number one, the submission of the disciples. Point number two we see in verses 15 through 20, and that is the suicide of a disciple. The suicide of Judas taking place here. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So we see Peter taking the lead amongst these folks here. And he said... Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. Now that's pretty graphic, isn't it? And And maybe that's too much information for some of us. It's a very gory scene for us to think about. But think about who's writing it. Peter, a fisherman. He's used to blood and guts, gutting fish, doing different things. So he frames it in a certain way that would be peculiar to him. And it became known to all inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So, do we have a discrepancy, a contradiction in the scriptures? Because we know that in Matthew 27, it says that Judas went out and he hung himself. And now here we see that he fell upon the rocks and his bowels gushed out all over the rocks. Is there a contradiction within the Bible? Well, no, there isn't. Both can be true. And so he hung himself. And then after he hung himself and he was dead, after a period of time, maybe the rope gave way and he dropped and his bowels all gushed out. Or somebody cut the rope and then his guts all spilled out on the rocks. Especially if he was decomposed to any any degree. Again, that's too much information. But... But, but that is what is here in the scriptures for us. So we can see that we can put these two passages together and that they do, uh, they do make sense. There is no contradiction. Both of these things are true. 
He hung himself and he also, falling headlong, burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. The joy and the excitement, the joy and the excitement of those gathered is dampened to a degree as they remember the betrayal and subsequent suicide of Judas and what took place in his life and how horrible that is and how they walked with him and how he was in their company, in their number, how he would have been active in in hearing Jesus preaching, in the miracles that occurred, probably some, maybe even through him, through other disciples. And yet they see the end to which he went and this place to which he went. And so it's a very sobering thing here. But we notice that Peter takes the initiative, he takes the lead in this, and he wants to take away the worry and the concern that they have, that these things are all a part of God's plan. And of course, he points to the Scripture. He points back to the Scripture. Peter characterized the Scripture, and he quotes it. In verse 16 there, we see this quote, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. The inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. The Bible was written, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, by men moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. So again, the doctrine of inspiration. Peter clearly affirms the doctrine of inspiration. That God inspires it through people. So Peter reassures his hearers here that God's word had to be fulfilled. The betrayal of Jesus by Judas was part of God's plan as predicted in the Old Testament. His life and death fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. And we see Peter using some of those prophecies here. We see in Psalm 55, 12 through 15, clearly predicts the betrayal of Jesus. In Psalm 69.25, we see the prediction of his removal from office, the betrayal's removal from office. And then Psalm 109 and verse 8 provides the promise of a replacement, that there would be another person that would take his place in this group, in this company. And so think about this for a second, what's happening here, what Peter unfolds for us. Peter, a very simple fisherman, uneducated, And yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he puts all of those things together. Jesus, his intense theological training of of Peter and the rest of the twelve, the time period that had just passed, maybe the time period from the resurrection of Jesus, this intervening 10-day period, all of this time that Peter would have been sifting through the scriptures, pouring over them, going over these things, to see Jesus in the Old Testament and to see these prophecies and then bring them to bear upon the lives of these people in teaching. It's quite a phenomenal thing. Again, uneducated, doesn't have the theological background, didn't have this Old Testament upbringing to be able to know all of these things like maybe the Apostle Paul did. Uh, Maybe for the Apostle Paul, these things came much easier, but for Peter to be able to, to have all of these things, that should be a great encouragement to us. That regardless of our theological training, our background, the Lord can use us in being able to encourage those around us. And that's exactly what Peter does here. He encourages them. And then he also gives instruction concerning the selection of the next disciple who would take the place amongst this company of individuals. And we see that in verses 21 to 26, 
with the choosing here of Matthias. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven. So the shock of Judas' betrayal and suicide gives way to the reality that he needs to be replaced. Why would he need to be replaced? Well, one reason could possibly be that the promise Jesus had made to them had to be fulfilled. And how could it be fulfilled without that twelfth disciple? And so in Matthew 19, Jesus shares with the disciples that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Peter says in response, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And verse 28 of Matthew 19 says that Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So maybe in Peter's mind, he's trying to put these things together. He doesn't know when this promise is going to be fulfilled or enacted, but he knows that they need 12 to be able to fulfill this particular promise. Now, some have argued that Peter is wrong in doing this, that they should have waited for the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't he be a perfect 12th? Wouldn't he fit nicely among the 12? Well, he's not numbered among the 12, but he does have a very important position as an apostle. He is not one of the twelve, but he is a unique apostle going to the Gentiles. So the choice of Matthias was not a mistake. They prayed and God answered in this way, and they went with the answer that God gave them. And after they prayed, they cast lots. Now, should we cast lots today? Well, no. This is the last time we see it in the New Testament, and we so don't see it continued in the, in the early church, and so that wouldn't be a practice that we should be doing. Another great reason why we wouldn't do that is because now we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And so these types of practices that we see in the Old Testament and we see uh, with the casting of lots in the New Testament is done away with the coming of the Holy Spirit. He will guide us into all truth. So Matthias was the choice. And with his selection, they were now waiting. This period of waiting for the disciples was not a period of inactivity. We see here that they were busy doing a number of different things. We see it was a time of preparation for them. And that should be the encouragement to us that in our times of waiting, it's a time of preparation. That we don't lose hope, that we don't lose our confidence in the Lord and in the promises that he makes to us, but we have this great confidence in him. So, in terms of application, I have one, the number of different avenues we could take in this. We could look at the importance of the church, 
the importance of a community. We see this 120 and how closely knit together that they are in fellowship and in unity. We see in verse 14 that they are with one accord. They are of the same mind. They are with one accord. And what an amazing thing that that is when you consider all of these disciples, the variety of backgrounds of people in this company of 120, and some of these men who are very strong-willed men, some who wanted to argue about the best seed in the kingdom of God, various ways in which could destroy them, that they might have, have been able to share at this particular time. And we think about all the others that were there and all the variety of opinions that could be put forward as to what they should do next. And maybe they should go home and maybe they should disband or whatever it would be. But they were of one heart and one mind. They were all looking up to Christ. They were all looking for the promise that was imminently coming. They were all waiting very patiently. They were all seeking the Lord in unity. And so we could talk about unity and we could go on and talk about unity. But there is one particular thing here that I want to try to bring out and flesh out in a, in a way here that, it, that is also important. And that is waiting is a time for prayer. We should not become disheartened so that we do not pray. We need to continue in prayer. We need to seek, we need to knock, we need to ask, and we need to continue to do so. So waiting is a time for prayer. It's always a time to pray, but we often need to feel more acutely the need to pray during these times of waiting, even more so than other times when things seem to be going well. When we have times of uncertainty, when we are waiting for those doctor's results, when we are waiting for different things to happen, we are, when we are waiting for the Lord to move and to, to act, when we are seeking to be patient, those are times that we need to be persistent in prayer. We see in Acts 1.14 that they were devoting themselves to prayer. Waiting is a time to be persistent in prayer. Not discouragement, not throwing in the towel, but patiently waiting upon God in prayer. Not giving in, but giving those things up to the Lord. Those things that we have cares and concerns about, giving those things over to the Lord. Now I'd ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 36. If you could turn back there, Isaiah 36. I've left enough time here to be able to cover these verses, I hope in an adequate way, uh, that will be of an encouragement to you as we end our time this evening in the next, uh, say, seven or so minutes. I was reading Isaiah 36 and 37 this past week, and then I was thinking through this passage and how, they, how this coordinates with this, this prayer idea that we should be persistent in prayer. And we see here that the Assyrians are once again attacking Jerusalem. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, has sent forward his, his messenger, the Rabshakeh, and he is a, a military person, a high rank. That's what that word means when we read through here. It's a high-ranking military official that has come before the walls of Jerusalem that is, that, is, that is condemning them, that is condemning their God, that is treating their God as nothing, just like all the other gods in all the other nations that they have conquered. And so let's pick up and read here what this Rabshakeh has to say in verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Again, the city is under siege. There's around 
200,000 soldiers outside of Jerusalem waiting to lay siege to the city and to come in to the city and to annihilate everyone and to take over. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, verse 15, by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not let Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. It's a false promise. Down to verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharaim, Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? So again, he's putting all of the other gods of all the other nations on par with the God of Israel. And that's a big mistake as they are going to find out. Verse 20. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? And so we see in the close of the chapter here, these messengers are tearing their, they're terrified, they're tearing their robes and their clothing. They're going to Hezekiah and then he too tears his clothing as we see in chapter 37 and verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of of the Lord. And then he sends word to Isaiah. He sends these messengers to Isaiah in verse 5. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, that is Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. So this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 7, Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. He had heard. There's the first part of this prophecy of verse 7 given by the prophet Isaiah, fulfilled. That's the first part. He's heard the rumor, so he's gone to fight. Verse 10, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And we flip over, in my Bible at least, to verse 14. What is the response here? They hear all of these different things. They, they then have this letter that has been given to the messengers from the Rabshakeh to be given to Hezekiah. And what does Hezekiah do with it? He goes to the temple. Verse 14, chapter 37. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And then he goes on and he prays this beautiful prayer, which we don't have time to cover. Go down to verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Down to verse 23. And, and so we see that 
Now the Lord is giving this determination based on the prayers of Hezekiah. Hezekiah coming and spreading these things out to him. And he's talking to the Assyrians here. And the Lord says, um, whom you have mocked and reviled. So again, coming to the city walls, mocking and reviling not only the Israelites, not only those people in Jerusalem, but also God. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. Now go all the way down to verse 33. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own name's sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech, and Sherezar, oh, I'm having trouble with names tonight. And Sherezar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And so now we see part two of the fulfillment back to chapter 37 and 7. All this prophecy given by Isaiah, these two parts of it, completely fulfilled in exactly the same way that Isaiah had said. So what is the point? What was the key here? What gave the victory? Jerusalem was going to be overtaken. They were not going to be able to fight against the Assyrians. They didn't have an army large enough, even close to large enough, to be able to go into combat against them. They were no match, but the Lord was. And the turning point that we see here is when Hezekiah in 37.14 goes before the Lord. He spreads out his concerns before the Lord. He spreads out this letter before the Lord. We see that in verse 14, and then again he's praying in verse 15 and verse 21. The Lord says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And then the Lord goes on to describe how he's going to take care of Sennacherib, the Rabshakeh, and, and this army of the Assyrians. So Hezekiah spread it all out before the Lord. And I love the way that it's phrased that way. He spread it all out. It's a beautiful picture of what we should do. We should spread it all out before the Lord. All of our cares, all of our concerns, all of those things that cause us anguish and bother us. We need to spread them all out before the Lord. Sin, sickness, finances, relational troubles, troubles at work, troubles in the home, whatever they might be, unsaved family members and friends, we spread it all out before the Lord. And is not that exactly what Jesus did throughout his life? He went away privately to pray. He taught the disciples how to pray. He prayed continually. He prayed for us in John chapter 17. Always praying. And then he prays in great anguish, sweating as it were drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. Always praying. Praying on the cross. Continually praying. He lays it all out before 
the Lord. And maybe you tonight are in great anguish. Maybe you tonight are in great turmoil and in great distress. Much the way that Hezekiah was. You don't know how you are going to be delivered. The things seem to be insurmountable of what you are up against. And we need to spread all of those things before the Lord. We need to take the encouragement from Psalm 46 and verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And he will be exalted. He will be exalted in all those who will trust in him while waiting on him. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for the lessons of your word. We do thank you for these saints of old and for how they went through different trials and difficulties, how they navigated these things with your help. And we ask that we too would seek continually your help. And I pray for all of my brothers and sisters, some who are in anguish and in turmoil, not knowing which way to turn, not knowing to go to the right or to the left. I pray that they would pray. I pray that they would spread it all out before you. And I pray that in your time you would act for their great benefit, for their blessing, for their great joy, and that they would look back in time and see the great God that you are and that you have done great and wonderful things. And so we thank you, O God, in Christ's name. Amen.